Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A hearing coming up on former President Trump's request for a neutral person to review materials the FBI took from his home. But does news from the Justice Department undercut his request? The Biden administration wants to forgive billions of dollars of student loan debt, but it's not clear yet who exactly is going to pay for it. Huge companies are allegedly labeling and selling foreign beef as made in the USA. Some say it's ruining American ranchers. As residents of Jackson, Mississippi deal with flooded communities, they also face problems with the public water system. Officials cannot guarantee running water. A judge will hear arguments Thursday on whether to appoint a neutral third party to review material the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago. That's called a special master. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on why former President Trump's legal team made the request for one. The effort to protect privileged information, privileged communications between Donald Trump and his lawyers, is a reason the former president requested a special master. The neutral party would oversee the review of all the evidence the FBI recovered in the Mar-a-Lago search. And a judge in the case has indicated she may well appoint one. But the Justice Department Monday said it's completed its review of the documents. The DOJ said it's possible the FBI took attorney-client privileged materials. AP reporter Eric Tucker says this could undercut Trump's request for a special master. The Justice Department in saying that it has already completed its review of the documents is effectively suggesting that the appointment of a special master is no longer necessary or important because it is saying that it has effectively already done the work that a special master would be tasked with doing. Trump and his lawyers argue a special master is necessary. His lawyers have accused investigators of failing to disclose enough information to them about what exactly was removed from Mar-a-Lago. They've asked investigators to return any items outside the scope of the search warrant. The Justice Department filing today suggests that the department views that request as effectively moot because it's already finished its review. But we're anticipating the Trump legal team is going to continue to push forward for the appointment of the special master to review documents for potential privilege concerns. The FBI took materials that were allegedly classified or top secret, according to a property receipt. But Trump and some of his former aides say he had a standing order that declassified the documents that were taken to Mar-a-Lago. The National Intelligence Director told lawmakers Friday her office is working with the DOJ on a classification review of the documents. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. January 6th defendant Joshua Pruitt was sentenced yesterday for his involvement in the Capitol breach. His lawyer says he received an unfair sentence. We think that the sentence is disproportionate to what other uh, defendants who were involved with January 6th actually received, um, particularly given the fact that Mr. Pruitt didn't engage in any um, physical violence against any law enforcement officers or anything of that nature. Um, At 55 months, he pretty much received one of the highest sentences that any January 6th defendant who pled guilty uh, for a nonviolent offense has received thus far. After Joshua Pruitt serves four years and seven months of imprisonment, he faces three years of supervised release. Jenkins originally sought a three-year prison sentence for his client, while prosecutors sought five.
More than 240 defendants involved in the Capitol breach have been sentenced, mostly for misdemeanor offenses. Only four of them have received longer prison sentences than Pruitt, and all four of those were convicted of assaulting or obstructing law enforcement officers. Pruitt was on probation and wearing an ankle monitor on the day of the breach. He was initially arrested on the night of January 6th for violating a curfew imposed by the mayor of Washington, D.C. He's been jailed since January 2022 when a judge ordered his pretrial detention. He pleaded guilty in June to a felony charge of obstruction of an official proceeding. One of President Biden's choices for his intelligence advisory board signed a letter claiming that stories about Hunter Biden's laptop were Russian disinformation. Jeremy Bash has been a chief of staff for both the CIA and the Department of Defense. The October 19, 2020 letter claimed stories about Hunter Biden's laptop were part of a Russian operation. That's as the officials admitted that they didn't know if emails from the computer were genuine. The letter was published by Politico under the headline, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. That's after the New York Post reported on the contents of the laptop emails in the run-up to the 2020 elections. The emails have since been accepted as genuine by many media outlets. The White House didn't mention that Bash signed the letter regarding Hunter Biden in its selection announcement. Hunter Biden hasn't denied that the laptop belongs to him. Bash didn't respond to an Epic Times request for comment. The Biden administration is planning to cancel at least a portion of many Americans' student loan debt, but it's still not clear who exactly is going to foot the multi-billion dollar bill. The White House unveiled President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan last week. They say canceling part of people's debt is estimated to cost $24 billion per year, or $240 billion over a 10-year period. The National Economic Council shared a plan to pay for it with Fox News saying, compared to the previous year, $1.7 trillion more are coming into the Treasury than are going out, and we're using a portion of that. However, some economic experts say this means the cost will just be added to the already existing $31 trillion of U.S. debt, which will ultimately have to be paid by taxpayers. NTD reached out to the White House to ask whether some taxes will be raised or if other programs will be cut in order to pay for the plan. We didn't hear back before broadcast. Under Biden's forgiveness plan, individuals making less than $125,000 per year will have $10,000 of their debt canceled. Republicans say the debt wipeout is unfair to many people. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell issued a statement saying President Biden's student loan socialism is a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save for college, every graduate who paid their debt, and every American who chose a certain career path or volunteered to serve in our armed forces in order to avoid taking on debt. Others have pointed out that the cost of debt forgiveness should fall on universities, not taxpayers. And still on President Biden's student loan forgiveness, Senator Bernie Sanders is pushing back against Republicans' criticism of the plan while the GOP is allegedly offering tax breaks to billionaires. But the debate goes further, and it raises profound questions. What about people who paid off every penny of their debt just months before the announcement? Some of them are bitter, but satisfied with themselves. And what about the values in terms of financial responsibility that this instills in young students taking out a loan? I wanted to learn more about this, so I spoke with a financial consultant to find out. Joining us now to discuss student loan forgiveness is Dan Geltrude, who is the founder and managing partner of Geltrude & Company and also the author of Positive Financial Karma. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. Hey, thanks for uh, having me. 
Absolutely. The White House and an economist at Upjohn Institute say that about a third of people with student loans have debt, but no degree. Does this justify their decision to cancel the debt? Well, I think in the big picture here, you have to look at who are the winners and who are the losers. Now, the winners are clearly those who are going to have their debt forgiven and also the colleges and the universities because this just lends itself for them to be able to charge more. Of course, who ends up paying the bill? American taxpayers. So that's really how this plays out. And I think that you really have to look at what the problem is, not just this Band-Aid for giving a certain group of people some economic relief. So, Dan, what are your solutions to this problem? Well, I think the first thing that you have to do here is you have to educate these students about what this debt means. And I say no one should be eligible to take out a student loan unless they complete some type of educational course which explains how this debt really works and that you're going to have to pay it back. The next thing is, is how about these colleges and universities who have no skin in the game? It's the federal government that's guaranteeing the loans. The colleges get paid no matter what. So I say that the colleges and the universities have to be participatory in some way with these loans. Let them experience some of the potential bad debt, meaning students perhaps not being able to pay that, that money back. I also think that you put something attached to majors. You have people out there that are majoring in certain areas, and not that there's anything wrong with education and what they want to learn, but it puts them in a position where they're going to go out and have a career in that area. They're never going to be able to pay that loan back. So you have to take a look at whether the loan makes sense. And then finally, I would say, these colleges and universities have been upping their tuition far beyond the cost of inflation, right? So you set something up where it says, if you're going to charge more than the rate of inflation, no federal assistance in any way. So I think if you put some of those plans in place, you could start to address the real problem, which is college is simply too expensive. So, Dan, you covered a lot of ground there. You talked about educating these young minds who are taking out these loans. What principles are we teaching these young borrowers if we allow their loans to be forgiven? <laughs> well, exactly. So, you know, that sets it up to say, well, I'm going to take all these loans and maybe I won't have to pay it back. And that's not the real world. Uh, everybody at some point in time ends up taking loans for whatever the reason, education, cars, house, whatever they need. Well, you can't assume taking out debt that it's just going to be forgiven. That's not really the real world, except in this particular case. So I think it sets a bad precedent all the way around. And you also mentioned that taxpayers are going to be the ones footing the bill. Can you explain how this happens, whether it's through inflation or more taxes? Well, ultimately, anytime the government is in effect, giving money away, in this case, in the form of forgiving debt, somebody's got to pay that debt, right? So the federal government doesn't have any of its own money. They have taxpayer money. So when they spend it or if they're forgiving debt, that's all the money that's been collected by taxpayers in order to pay the federal debt. 
you have to collect more taxes. So that simply means that people are going to have to pay more taxes to be able to cover that forgiveness. Well, thank you for helping us understand some of this cause and effect here. Dan Geltrude, founder and managing partner of Geltrude & Company, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Foreign beef is being labeled and sold as made in the USA. The president of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association says that's been happening in the United States for years and it's hurting American ranchers. Here's more. Dr. Brooke Miller is the president of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, which represents American ranchers. He told the Epic Times that meat monopolies are driving rural American farmers out of the market. We've been losing thousands and thousands of cattle ranchers over the last several decades. And it's all based on the fact that we have four multinational corporations that dominate uh, the, pro the food protein industry. They uh, have anti-competitive practices and uh, they basically steal a lot of money out of rural America. Miller says farmers in rural America can't compete against the practices that these corporations employ, such as buying in bulk from foreign countries. Now, right now, there's such a shortage uh, the, 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 quote, cow herd that produces the cattle is lower than it's been in 30, 40 years. But that's because the monopolies have forced a lot of cattle ranchers out of the market. And they've done this uh, in many ways, but they import, they import um, beef from foreign countries and label it as U.S. beef. Can you uh, believe how, that? How are they able to do that? Because our government allows them. As long as they're slaughtered here in the U.S.? That, is Doesn't that even matter. Miller says the meat only has to be repackaged and relabeled in the U.S. to be called U.S. made. He says the U.S. government tried to require retailers to show the country of origin for meat, but the Canadian and the Mexican government sued the U.S. and the World Trade Organization, saying that was against the North American Free Trade Agreement. The U.S. then repealed that requirement. Miller says dependency on beef from foreign countries not only hurts American farmers, but also consumers. We saw that with COVID-19 when, when the pandemic initially happened. Um, we saw shortages of meat in the beef counter, in the meat counter. We saw prices go really high. According to him, the U.S. needs a more regional food system. If you'd like to see the full interview, please visit EpicTV.com. Coming up, Cubans are fleeing their country in numbers not seen since a mass exodus in 1980. An analyst says it's due to mismanagement, corruption, and repression by the ruling communist regime. We'll bring you his insight after the break. In Jackson, Mississippi, residents already dealing with flooded streets are now also faced with a failing water system. The problem is due to issues at the main water treatment facility. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves said he will sign an emergency declaration for the city and create an incident command center to distribute water. Until it is fixed, it means we do not have reliable running water at scale. It means the city cannot produce enough water to fight fires, to reliably flush toilets, and to meet other critical needs. The state will help distribute water to up to 180,000 people as crews work to get the water treatment plant up and running. The city operates the area's two water treatment plants, the OB Curtis plant, which treats 50 million gallons per day, and the JH Fuel plant, whose normal production of 20 million was increased to 30 million gallons. Because water pressure dropped system-wide, officials could not guarantee running water, and they did not know how many homes were affected. In the meantime, Jackson Public Schools said they would shift to online learning starting today. 
Cubans are risking their lives to flee their homeland, and the numbers are staggering. It's second only to a mass exodus just over four decades ago, where about 125,000 Cubans fled the island in a six-month period. Some are now flying to neighboring countries, hitchhiking and trekking across mountain ranges. Others try their luck at an ocean voyage, with some so desperate they're using homemade rafts. But why are they leaving? We explore this question with the co-founder of an organization that helps Cuban exiles. Joining us now is Orlando Gutierrez Boronat. He's a longtime leader in the effort to restore democracy and freedom in Cuba. He also heads the human rights organization, the Cuban Democratic Directorate. Thank you for your time today, Orlando. Good morning. Thank you for having me in your program. The United States is seeing what's being called the largest flight of Cuban exiles since the Mario Boatlift in 1980. Some are saying that tightened U.S. sanctions and the negative impact the pandemic had on the economy are the cause. What do you think is behind the mass exodus? Well, just like in 1980, the regime is facing unprecedented popular challenge at home. People want change, and Cubans are going out in massive demonstrations against the regime. They've done so repeatedly over the past year and different and throughout the island. There are different forms of resistance the regime is encountering from the people uh, everywhere in Cuba. So what the regime has done, uh, once again, is it has opened the exit valve, the, the safety valve, so that people, so that it facilitates the exodus of people out of Cuba, and in that manner, they reduce the internal pressures, they make money off the people who are leaving the island, and they place pressure on U.S. borders and on the U.S. system through this massive migration of Cubans. Can you explain how this relates to the protests that we saw, the huge protests that we saw in Cuba against the communist regime about a year ago? Cuba was, in 1959, before the advent of communism, one of the most prosperous Latin American economies. The country was about to, to take off in terms of development. The distorted and draconian economic measures taken by that regime to centralize all production and to control the livelihoods of Cubans has collapsed the Cuban economy. Years of mismanagement, of corruption, of um, absurd ideological mandates have ruined the Cuban economy. So people have a hard time uh, finding food because the countryside has been, uh, the production of the countryside has been leveled, literally leveled with the communist policies. There's barely any electricity because the regime has not maintained or done the upkeep of the electrical grid in the country. There's lack of water, all sorts of, of, of failures in, in the basic subsistence, subsistence level of Cubans. So if you add to that the constant repression, that you, know, you can't write, you can't speak, you can't think, um, this constant persecution against Cubans so that they don't express their desire for change, you have a situation that is highly untenable for the population. So that's why thousands are leaving, while thousands of others are protesting in the island. And what do you expect to happen once they leave? Well, what we have is a good portion of the communist middle class, people who are the administrators of the Cuban regime at the middle level of the communist machine, who are leaving because they're fed up with the system, because they, they can't survive anymore. Uh, and when they get here, you know, Cubans are hardworking people. Um, they're very productive. They're very smart. The only place in the world where Cubans haven't succeeded is in Cuba because of communism. I expect a lot of these Cubans will adapt into the, into the workforce. However, as has always occurred, anytime there's a mass exodus, Castro will put in his spies and his fifth columnists to, to subvert and to strike at U.S. interests from inside the U.S. So these are insiders of the regime leaving. That's very interesting. Now, other than Cuban exiles coming into the country to seek asylum, what do you think the U.S. can do to help the people of Cuba better? I, think, I, don't, I don't think we should continue to have uh, a halfway point with the regime. 
sanctions have been essential, U.S. sanctions have been essential in preventing this regime from increasing its repression. Uh, the regime is facing uh, great difficulties in putting down the people. I think we should take the, the necessary steps to aid the Cuban people in ending this regime once and for all. But this status quo, where the regime barely survives and it represses and Cubans leave, it benefits only the, the, the perpetuation of communist rule in Cuba. We should take the next necessary step, which is to aid Cubans through all means possible so that they can change the regime and reestablish freedom and, and democratic rule in Cuba. Very in-depth analysis. Orlando Gutierrez Bornat with the Cuban Democratic Directorate. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. A massacre suspect is ordered to wear an electronic stun vest. The vest will allow officers to restrain him during court proceedings. The suspect is from Ohio and potentially faces the death penalty. The judge ordered that George Washington Wagner IV wear the vest at all court proceedings and have no other restraints used on him. The vest is supposedly not visible when wearing normal clothes and does not restrict normal movement. Wagner and three of his family members are accused of killing eight people in April 2016. The victims were all connected with a rival family. The two families were believed to be friends up until two members had a child together. Then a custody battle grew into a feud. A 2018 news release says the Wagners developed an elaborate scheme to commit murder and cover up the evidence. Authorities say they use their knowledge of the other family's homes and daily habits. A man suspected of shooting four people in Detroit has been arrested. The suspect was arrested Sunday evening after an hours-long manhunt. Police say he appeared to be firing at people randomly over a roughly two-and-a-half-hour period earlier in the day. The police chief said tips led officers to the suspect but did not release further information. He added that all four shootings were traced to one firearm and they believe there is only one shooter. He said investigators don't think there was any connection between the victims, noting one person was walking a dog and another waiting for a bus. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan called the shooting the kind of tragedy that breaks the heart of this city. Three of the victims have died. And a vegan woman convicted of murder in the malnutrition death of her young son was sentenced Monday to life in prison. Sheila O'Leary was convicted in June on six charges in the death of Ezra O'Leary. She was convicted of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter, child abuse, and two counts of child neglect. Her sentencing in Lee County, Florida was postponed four times. Her husband, Ryan O'Leary, remains in jail while awaiting trial on the same charges. Sheila O'Leary's family followed a strict vegan diet. Investigators said the couple told them the family ate only raw fruits and vegetables, although the toddler was also fed breast milk. A police report says the 18-month-old boy weighed 17 pounds and was the size of a 7-month-old baby when he died in September 2019. The Florida couple had two other children, ages 3 and 5, who were also malnourished. A fourth child had been returned to her biological father during an earlier malnutrition case in Virginia. That's what court records show. An Egyptian artifact, possibly a few thousand years old, was discovered in a shipment to the United States from Europe. The find was made by U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers at the port in Memphis, Tennessee. Egyptian art experts say the artifact is the lid of a jar used to hold the internal organs of mummies. The lid is estimated to date back to Egypt's third intermediate period, a time from about 1100 B.C. to 700 B.C. The item falls under the protection of the Convention on Cultural Property 
Implementation Act. It restricts the import to the U.S. of certain archaeological items. The lid was seized after the shipper made conflicting statements of its value. U.S. Customs say the lid has been turned over to Homeland Security for more examination. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, floods in Pakistan have devastated the country. Authorities are estimating billions of dollars in damage. The U.N. is appealing for emergency aid. And more than 400 million people have formally cut ties with the Chinese Communist Party. A rally in London marks the quiet but significant grassroots movement. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. Welcome back. The United Nations on Tuesday issued an urgent appeal for $160 million in emergency funds for Pakistan. Floods in the country have affected 33 million people, killing over 1,100. Here's more on that story. As Pakistan reels from weeks of unprecedented and devastating flash floods, on Monday it began to tally up the hits to its economy. The full extent of the damage remains to be seen as authorities wait for water levels to recede. Yet according to the country's planning minister, Ashan Iqbal, early estimates showed they were already deep in the red. I think it's going to be huge. Uh, so far, a very early preliminary estimate is that uh, it is higher than $10 billion. My hunch is that this is going to be two to three times higher than what we are estimating. Iqbal said almost half of the country's cotton crops had been washed away by historic rains, a serious blow to a country whose textile sector makes up a majority of what it sells abroad. Meanwhile, severe damage to other crops caused food prices to shoot up. The floods also wiped out infrastructure around the country, including a major bridge in northern Pakistan, which wound up almost completely cut off from the rest of the country. At least 1,000 people have been killed in recent weeks, with more than 33 million people affected, over 15% of Pakistan's population. A growing number of Chinese people are joining a grassroots movement to quit the Chinese Communist Party. More than 400 million people have formally quit. A rally in central London over the weekend marked this milestone. NTD's Jane Worrell was there and sent us this report. The sound of the cymbals pierces St. Martin's Place. But what they're celebrating is a grassroots movement that's been growing quietly. It's called Tuidang, which translates from Chinese as withdrawal from the party. It involves people removing themselves from the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliations online. The people behind me are marking 400 million people quitting the Chinese Communist Party. Now, the quitting the Chinese Communist Party movement is a significant grassroots movement which has been going on for almost two decades, both inside and outside of China. It is very significant for the Chinese people to quit the CCP and its affiliated organisations. Only by quitting the CCP will China have hope. I come here to support 400 million Chinese quitting the CCP and I'm also joined the Dragon Team. It's you know, based on traditional Chinese culture. 
The Tui Dang movement first started in 2004 after the release of the book Nine Commentaries on the Communist Party by the Epoch Times. It documents the brutality of the CCP. Many of those who give out the copies of the book are practitioners of Falun Gong, a meditation discipline based on the moral teachings of truth, compassion and tolerance. For more than 20 years, the Chinese Communist Party has launched a campaign to vilify, arrest and torture Falun Gong practitioners. My hope for the future of China is um, that more people will know um, that Falun Dafa is good and that um, it's important that we can choose by ourselves uh, what we want to believe in and uh, we don't have to be told by the government what to believe in. Some Chinese people use pseudonyms to quit the CCP out of concern for their safety. The party's history of killing and deceit has deeply impacted Chinese society. They, they teach us to hate Falun Gong, hate Uyghurs, you know, hate Tibetans, and against the, the landlord, you know, uh, before, against the students protesting in Tiananmen Square. He says some Western companies doing business deals with China to get goods cheaply could be complicit in funding the persecution of Chinese people. There was support from people walking past, including Natalie from Ukraine. I'm also from the communist background, so I know not that much, but a little bit. But still, I think everybody deserves to live in a free country and to be free, uh, free to... Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, of religion, of everything. And it's a gift that we have from, from, from our birth, from God himself. So I'm very happy and I support those who stand and may they have courage and strength. This rally is a show of defiance against communist control and a symbol of freedom for the Chinese people. Zheng Warrell, NTD News, London. A United States Coast Guard boat is docked in Manila for a four-day goodwill visit to the Philippines. Coast Guard members from both countries plan to hold joint maritime drills. The drills are aimed to improve disaster response skills and maritime law enforcement. The U.S. ambassador to the Philippines says the two allies are strengthening their ability to work together in critical areas. They hope for a more connected, open, and secure Indo-Pacific. The commander of the Philippine Coast Guard fleet says the exercises will focus on search and rescue and response time to disaster. They want to make sure the two Coast Guard fleets can operate together smoothly. Around 150 Philippine Coast Guard members and 250 of their U.S. counterparts will participate in the joint exercises in the South China Sea. The two nations conducted the same drills in 2019 and 2020. But elsewhere in the Pacific, concerns about Beijing's influence continue to rise. In the latest development, the Solomon Islands is suspending U.S. Navy visits. The Solomon Islands prime minister appears to be deepening ties with the Chinese regime with this and other moves. A U.S. embassy in Australia said yesterday that the Solomon Islands informed them that all naval visits are suspended until further notice. The island nation previously denied a U.S. Coast Guard vessel permission to dock last week. The vessel had just wrapped up its part in an international mission to prevent illegal fishing in the region, an ongoing issue with Chinese fishing fleets. It was supposed to stop in the Solomon Islands on August 23rd to refuel, but there was no response from the country. The crew were then diverted to Papua New Guinea. Large plumes of smoke billowed out as Indian authorities demolished two skyscrapers on Sunday. That's after the country's Supreme Court found they violated multiple building regulations and fire safety norms. 
Crowds watching from rooftops on nearby high-rise buildings cheered and clapped as the 340-foot-tall towers collapsed. Over 8,100 pounds of explosives were used to bring down the SuperTech Twin Towers, which fell in under 10 seconds. They were located on the outskirts of capital New Delhi and had 850 unoccupied apartments. Some buildings in the vicinity were covered in white plastic sheaths to protect them from debris. Scores of police and emergency personnel were deployed for the operation. The Supreme Court last year ordered the demolition of the towers after a long legal battle. The blast will leave nearly 90,000 tons of rubble. Most of it will be used to fill the site while the rest will be recycled. And still to come, Britain is racing to find solutions to their energy crisis. British residents are expected to see an 80% rise in energy bills with a further hike expected after that. And in Poland, people are waiting for days in line to buy coal. The country is dealing with an embargo on Russian coal that residents use to heat their homes. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine goes into its seventh month, European countries are considering banning Russian tourists, but not everyone is on board. European defense ministers are gathering for a two-day informal meeting in Prague. The topic of discussion is Ukraine and what they can do for the country in terms of military and social support. They're also considering further measures against Russia. One proposal put forward by Eastern European countries is to ban Russian tourists from entering the EU. But reaching a consensus among the 27 EU countries may be difficult. In a memo circulated ahead of the meeting, France and Germany urged for a more cautious approach. They said changing the EU's visa policy could feed the Russian narrative, increase Russian patriotism, and estrange future generations. British households, like elsewhere in Europe, face soaring energy bills this winter. It threatens to push many into fuel poverty. Here's that story. British energy bills will jump 80% from October, regulator Ofgems calling it a crisis that would have a massive impact on households. Ofgem demanded urgent government action. The average bill will soar to the equivalent of nearly $4,200 a year, it warned, with a further hike likely in January. We know that at the height of winter in January, we expect another £1,000 to go on the average UK energy bill. It has exploded our welfare safety net. To be honest, uh, families just cannot afford anything close to this. It's a disaster. Household spending on energy bills is at record highs in several European countries, driving millions into fuel poverty, data show. Wholesale prices have surged because of war in Ukraine, sanctions on Russia and the aftermath of the pandemic. The rise also threatens the future of businesses. Britain's response to the crisis has been paralysed by the race to replace Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Despite inflation hitting a 40-year high and Bank of England warnings of a lengthy recession, Finance Minister Nadim Zahawi said he was working on support options for vulnerable households and businesses, ready for Johnson's successor, who will be announced in early September. Ofgem calculates Britain's energy price cap every three months, such as the volatility of the sector in Britain which is particularly dependent on gas, that almost 30 energy retailers have gone out of business. Rising energy bills in the UK could cause major problems for those using life-saving dialysis machines at home. That's a warning from a patient advocacy group in Britain called Kidney Care UK. 
Dawn White says she fears the worsening crisis over home energy bills in the UK, part of the wider energy problems across Europe, could mean she'll no longer be able to afford a life-saving treatment. She uses this dialysis machine five days a week to pump clean blood around her body, replacing the work her kidneys would normally do. Dawn is 59 years old and lives in southeast England. She says her condition will be fatal without intensive use of the machine, which already costs about £200 a month to run. That's roughly US$238 and doesn't include costs of heating and other regular home appliances. My kidneys don't work, so they build up a lot of creatine. Creatine will kill you. So without my machine five times a week, 20 hours, I will die. And every time they put the prices up, although I can reduce what we use in the house to almost nothing, I cannot adjust what this uses. This is standard, this is it. Um, there's no way of saving on this. The energy crisis has hit all of Europe, but the UK has been hit particularly hard. An average household bill of £1,277 last year will rocket to more than £3,500 this year. That's over US dollars according to a forecasting agency called Cornwall Insight. Dawn, who has renal failure, is one of 5,000 people who dialyse at home out of 30,000 people on dialysis around the country. We're having shorter showers because it's an electric shower. We don't have the telly on for a long time. Um, we all sit in one room in the evening, uh, therefore it's only one light as opposed to all the lights on around the house. Um, we cut back as much as we can. The government's promised action to help those facing the predicament, saying the about 6 million disabled people in Britain would receive a one-off £150 cost of living payment next month. That's on top of other financial help with rising energy bills. If the couple cannot keep up with the higher charges, Dawn will have to receive treatment at the local hospital, which only has capacity to treat her for 12 hours a week. She said that would leave her feeling less well, reduce her independence and potentially make her less viable for a potentially life-saving transplant should her condition deteriorate. Still in the UK, a Royal Navy aircraft carrier, the HMS Prince of Wales, broke down off the UK's south coast shortly after embarking for exercises with the US. The 70,000-ton warship left Portsmouth Naval Base on Saturday before a mechanical issue occurred. The $3.5 billion carrier's departure had already been delayed from Friday because of a technical issue. The Royal Navy says it is moving the ship to a different location for further inspection. The carrier is moving slowly toward a sheltered area on the coast where divers will have an easier time to examine the damage. The UK's biggest warship was sailing to undertake training exercises with the U.S. Navy, the Royal Canadian Navy, and the United States Marine Corps. In Poland, where coal is king, dozens are lining up at a coal mine, waiting for days and nights to stock up on heating fuel. Dozens of cars and trucks line up at the Lebelski Weigel Bogdanka coal mine in Poland as people fearful of winter shortages wait for days and nights to stock up on heating fuel. 57-year-old Arthur, who did not want to give his full name, drove 18 miles to get to the mine in eastern Poland, hoping to buy several tons of coal for himself and his family. 
Arthur's household is one of the 3.8 million in Poland that rely on coal for heating and now face shortages and price hikes after Poland and the European Union imposed an embargo on Russian coal following Moscow's invasion of Ukraine in February. Poland banned purchases with an immediate effect in April, while the bloc mandated fading them out by August. While Poland produces over 55 million tons from its own mines every year, imported coal, much of it from Russia, is a household staple due to its competitive price and the fact that Russian coal is sold in lumps more suitable for home use. Soaring demand has forced state-controlled mines to ration sales or offer the fuel to individual buyers via online platforms in limited amounts. Dorada Choma, spokeswoman for the Bogdanka mine. We launched a point for small coal buyers, up to six tons, but it is also needed to mention the formalities. We have introduced a two-step formal path in order to eliminate situations where people were coming here, taking a spot in the queue and selling it to someone else or trading the coal illegally later. In recent years, Poland has been the most vocal critic of EU climate policy and a staunch defender of coal that generates as much as 80% of its electricity. But coal output has steadily declined as the cost of mining at deeper levels increases. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, berry growers are giving Canada a try as high costs and severe weather are making production difficult in the U.S. And a popular crime podcast in Australia has led to a conviction, and it's the main subject of the show. The man was found guilty of murdering his wife 40 years ago. Stay tuned for more right after this short break. Good to have you back with us. An Australian man is found guilty of murdering his wife 40 years ago. The belated conviction came after he was the subject of a popular podcast about his wife's disappearance. Former school teacher Chris Dawson's wife disappeared in January 1982. Her body was never found, and Dawson insisted that he had nothing to do with it. In 2003, a court inquiry proposed charging him with the murder, but prosecutors declined, citing a lack of evidence. The case went cold until now. In 2018, a podcast called The Teacher's Pet featured the case, drawing widespread public attention. Some 30 million downloads later and public pressure forced the police to reopen the investigation. This week, a judge found Dawson guilty of intentionally killing his wife. Apparently, he was pursuing a relationship with a teenage former student who was babysitting his kids. Dawson opted for a trial by judge instead of a jury, saying the podcast painted him in a negative light with the public. Some of North America's largest fruit distributors are conducting berry-growing trials all the way up in Canada. That's as drought and high costs hamper production in usual hot spots like California. Let's take a look. A swath of Canada, better known for maple syrup, is becoming a testing ground for berries normally grown further south. Fruit sellers are having to weigh up new growing areas amid extreme weather, drought, and high transportation costs. Driscoll's and Nature Ripe Farms, two of North America's largest fruit distributors, are both running berry trials in Ontario and Quebec. Canada's already a major blueberry and cranberry producer, but strawberries and raspberries could be added to that list in the future. 
Sebastian Dugray's team at Massey Nursery, southeast of Montreal, is already working with Driscoll's on new lines. Quebec is not a traditional place to grow blackberries and raspberries compared to other regions in the world. But uh, I do feel with the infrastructure that's available now, we can, we can come up with a more uh, steady way to produce on commercial scale, good tasting raspberries for a longer season. As costs in traditional growing hubs like California rise, the disparity with places like Quebec and Ontario will decrease. And that could make production north of the border a lot more viable. Tesla chief Elon Musk says he aims to get the electric automaker's self-driving technology ready by the end of the year. He says he hopes it could be in wide release in the United States and possibly Europe, depending on regulatory approval. The two technologies I'm focused on trying to ideally get done before the end of the year are getting our Starship uh, to orbit, uh, which I think is important for expanding consciousness uh, beyond Earth um, and life beyond Earth. Uh, and, um, and then uh, having the Tesla cars be able to do self-driving. Speaking at an energy conference in Norway, Musk also said the world must continue to extract oil and gas in order to sustain civilization while also developing sustainable sources of energy. And coming up, the National Ballet of Ukraine performed a show in Florida. It's the first time the company has performed in the U.S. since the war broke out. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Serena Williams signaled she is not quite ready for retirement. She advanced to the second round of the U.S. Open with a win on Monday. She defeated Danka Kovinich of Montenegro 6-3, 6-3. The 40-year-old American said earlier this month in a Vogue article that she was evolving away from tennis. The victory over the 80th-ranked Kovinich, just Williams' second win this year, will be a confidence boost for the tennis legend. Playing to a packed stadium, Williams showed signs of nerves, piling up double faults as Kovinich initially got out in front, but she lifted her game when she needed to. However, from here on out, it may get tricky. She now faces the number two player in the world, Annette Contevate, in the second round. Williams, who turns 41 next month, said she plans to devote more time to her family and business when she retires. The National Ballet of Ukraine performed in the U.S. for the first time since Russia's invasion. Their performance was in Orlando, Florida. The troupe performed sections from some of the world's most notable ballets while showcasing their Ukrainian culture. The dancers say they are proud to use their talents to help their country. A huge number of people who want to support Ukraine, we understand it and we uh, uh, try to do our best. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a military. Yes, I, uh, I can do what I can do if I can help in, in, this, in this side of life, you know, it's, it's really good for me. All of the proceeds are going to various organizations that support humanitarian and emergency medical aid to Ukrainian citizens, refugees and veteran services. A team of volunteers in Thailand is nursing an injured baby dolphin. It was found stranded a month ago on the country's eastern coast, drowning in a tide pool. The calf is named Paradon. The species has become vulnerable due to illegal fishing and pollution. According to veterinarians, the chance of survival for stranded dolphins is quite slim. 
Paradon is now being treated at the center in the country's Rayong province. A dozen vets and volunteers are attending to him around the clock. Because of an infection, the baby dolphin was so weak that he was unable to swim. Volunteers took turns holding him in the water to keep him from drowning, but now he's making vast improvements and is ready to swim again. Long-term care may continue for up to one year, but the team believes that caring for Paradon will help them learn more about the recovery process of his species. A penguin in shoes? It's not just a matter of style for little Lucas. These special boots were designed to help treat his foot condition. Lucas was not walking appropriately. He was showing a lot of tenderness on his left side, which is where his bumble is located. Um, so you would see him listing to the right a bit, um, and you would see him limping on his left foot. Uh, since we've been able to put the shoes on him, he's shown a much more normal gait, um, walking on flat surfaces. There's no limping, there's no favoring um, his left side any longer. Four-year-old Lucas has sores on his feet. They're due to a chronic condition known as bumblefoot, a term that covers a range of foot problems in birds. If left untreated, it can lead to infection and death. So wildlife care specialists at the San Diego Zoo turned to an organization called Therapaw. They created custom shoes which help Lucas stand and walk. The boots are cushioned and Velcroed in place so Lucas can climb rocks, swim, and nest as usual. He is now settling into the colony of penguins, though the vet said he may always need to wear his therapeutic shoes. Take a look at this. That's a bald eagle going through security at the airport. A traveler at Charlotte Douglas International Airport in North Carolina caught the scene on Monday. In a tweet, the Transportation Security Administration says the bird, named Clark, is part of the World Bird Sanctuary. The eagle was born at the sanctuary as part of a program that aimed to release the then-endangered birds into the wild. Bald eagles were removed from the endangered list in 2007, but remained protected by a pair of government acts. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Music